Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Welcome to part three of our four-part series, the 2022 Greatest Hits of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. The four parts include the top ten most listened to segments last year. In part one, we talked about tomatoes, and that included choosing the easiest-to-grow varieties. If you need to really prune young tomato plants or tomato flowers, the best tomatoes for containers, or battling blossom and rot in tomatoes. So if you're a backyard tomato grower, go back and listen to episode 248 for lots of great tips on growing tomatoes. Last week in part two, we talked with Grow Now author Emily Murphy. She talked about a way to build your soil without having to purchase bags or yards of potting mix. It's called lasagna gardening. And in part two last week, we visited with master gardener and accomplished home blackberry, boysenberry, and raspberry grower, Pam Bone, who had lots of good tips for growing these tasty, healthy treats. Today, in part three, it's a Debbie Flower extravaganza. Yes, our favorite retired college horticulture professor discusses how to reuse old potting soil, tips for reducing water use in the yard, and a checklist for starting your first garden. And by the way, if you've moved and you're thinking of starting a new garden, a lot of these first garden tips that you'll hear today may include ideas you haven't considered before starting that new garden. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Labutalon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. At one point or another, everybody has a first garden. A lot of people get the bug maybe when they go to a nursery and see some plants they like and figure it's time to start. Whoa, just, just hold on a minute. Before you plant anything, we have a checklist for you before you start your first garden of things you ought to consider. Consider this your first garden checklist. Debbie Flower is here, and here we are in Debbie Flower's garden. And even though, Debbie, you're an accomplished gardener, a retired college horticultural professor, by the way, America's favorite retired college <laughs> horticulture professor, uh, we should point out that anytime you move to a new house, it's a new challenge, it's a new garden, and it, it, it's kind of hard to tell gardeners this, but one piece of advice is live with the yard for a year and notice where the sun is. Absolutely. Living with the yard for a year is very difficult to do, but it is worth doing. And I've had many gardens, and I can't say that I have the patience that would allow you to live with the garden for a year. So I... <laughs> well, there's pots. Have you heard of smart pots? <laughs> there are pots, yes. And then there are annuals. And so going out with sunflower seeds in the summer or just trying things and making sure they get enough water and seeing what happens is uh, what you can do during that first year when you need to see where the sun is in the middle of winter, in the middle of summer, in spring, Marchish, and in fall. Yeah, one thing we did when we moved to the new house uh, six years ago is we lived with it for a year. We planted in pots temporarily, and I took pictures 
of the yard at four different times of the year throughout the day. So it's like once a month, every four months, every three months or so, I'd take a picture. I'd take a picture at 9 a.m., at noon, 3 p.m., and 6 p.m., just so I would remember where the shadows are, where the shade is, because all the neighbors had trees. And I wanted to know definitely which ones, which of those areas are going to get six to eight hours or more of sun a day. Turns out not many. <laughs> yes, and, and then you convince your neighbor to remove some of those trees, which, you know, by taking those pictures, you knew what needed to go. Pictures are wonderful. Pictures are not only do they inform you of, of sun and shade, but they show you how your yard is changing over time and and what wonderful things you've done to it. And that's the other thing, too, to consider, even if it's not your first garden, is plants grow and there are new areas of shade. So if you're going to be putting in plants that require full sun, you have to stay aware that the area that was full sun five years ago may not be full sun now. I guess when we're talking about planting a first garden, we should get a little bit more specific. Are we talking a flower garden, an herb garden, a vegetable garden? I guess with a vegetable garden, one thing you should make note of is what does your family enjoy eating? And no, there are no French fry plants. <laughs> yes, I have a vegetable bed, one raised bed and some in the ground area that I use for growing vegetables. And my production of vegetables has decreased over time because of the things my family will not eat. So why should I grow them if nobody's going to eat them? I have neighbors <laughs> who I can give some stuff to, but I remember showing up at one neighbor's house with some tomatoes and she said, you know, I'm not going to eat all your leftover tomatoes this summer. Said, okay, fine. Well, do you want these? <laughs> she took those, but we never took any back. So the garden has gotten smaller. Uh, and at times I've thought about just converting it to annual flowers so that I could have bouquets of flowers. I mentioned that to a horticulture friend, and she said, as long as you have a, a good um, farmer's market nearby. So, yes, you do need to decide what you're going to grow, what's going to make you happy, and look for those sunshade conditions. Six to eight hours of full sun for those flowers or those vegetables is definitely desirable. And I, in fact, had to move my raised bed this year because a tree got bigger, and it started shading the bed, and it, I wasn't getting enough sun for production. Another thing that beginning gardeners tend to do is, well, their eyes are bigger than their tummy. And when it comes to planting, they'll put in way too much. You know, those uh, suggestions on the back of seed packets and that come with uh, six packs of plants as far as spacing of plants. Uh, that's actually pretty good advice. It is. And if you're looking at landscape plants rather than annuals or things you're going to grow from seed, you need to look at the size the plant is going to be when it's mature. That's typically on the tag. If not, you're going to have to look the plant up and and find out how tall and wide it's going to become. Sometimes you only learn how tall it's going to become. Then you assume it will be equally as wide and then space them in the garden so that they will at maturity not run into each other. Maybe they'll touch. That's what you have to decide where your path is going to be. Where do you want to be able to walk between the plants? Where can the plants touch? But you need to give them enough space to get big enough. Exactly. A friend of mine is a landscape architect, and I asked her when I was teaching what is if if there was one thing she could say to to people when they are planting their gardens or yards, what would it be? And her number one thing was space the plants far enough apart. More problems are created by them being too close together than anything else. And I'm guilty of that as well, planting too close together. 
because it's so easy to do when you buy them. They're so small and cute and they look so pretty together and having these wide spaces between them doesn't make a lot of sense. But space them for their health and for the future of your garden. And not only is it healthier for the plant, it also can keep bad pests and diseases away as well. Because when you cut down air circulation by planting too close together, especially if you live in an area of high humidity, you can have all sorts of disease issues that could be mitigated by allowing air to circulate freely through those plants. Absolutely true. Yes. And when you're walking around your yard figuring out what you want to plant and where you want to put it, go inside the house and look out the windows. And think about where you spend most of your time indoors and which windows you're going to be looking out. And think about what you want to stare at for the rest of your life out those windows. And especially if you have a kitchen window, the vegetable garden, the fruit trees, the food products should be within easy view of that kitchen window. Yes, when I initially laid the hardscape in this landscape we're sitting in right now, the landscaper suggested putting the vegetable garden in a place I would not see it from the patio or any window. And I said, no, I have to be able to see it on a regular basis. So I tend it. Keep that in mind, too, when you're planning the garden. Do some uh, sitting inside and look out and and think about what you want to see that's out there. And remember that taller plants closer to your window may block the view of whatever's behind it. So if you want a complete view of the yard, if you're going to put in those trees or those shrubs, you may want to stick those further out so you can see the rest of your garden. Or if you're trying to protect some privacy, then you would want those taller plants closer to the window. Or you can create rooms and create a space that where you see, it makes your landscape feel bigger if you create where you can only see a small area and then you have to walk around a plant to see the next area in the, in your garden. Lots of, lots of different ways. I love the looking out the window, uh, idea as a, as a way to design the garden. I don't necessarily want to see my neighbor's house when I look outside the window. And so I've done lots of view blocking by planting trees and evergreen shrubs in places that will block those views. When you're planting your garden, one thing to keep in mind is where's the water faucet? How big of a chore is it going to be to water that garden? And this is where planning may require some pencil and paper because you may want to lay out an irrigation system, perhaps even a drip irrigation system. You may want that. And in our dry California climate, that's uh, almost a must. But I've lived in places that get rain year round. And in that case, we just needed to be near a hose bib. But we still needed to be near that hose bib instead of dragging it, you know, 50 feet across from from the you know back of the garage over to the vegetable garden. So having that in place is critical. Exactly. So plan on installing a permanent irrigation system so that the water controls are as close to the garden as possible. Or if you're putting in an entire irrigation system for the whole yard, consider valves that are dedicated to the vegetables that you can put on different timers as opposed to if you have a lawn. Uh, Lawns are some of the highest water users in the landscape. So Many things can survive with much less water than that. Even in our climate here that is dry, definitely from May through October, I don't water most of my landscape more than once every two weeks or so. Lawns, especially lawns that are mowed, need to be watered more frequently than that. Grass needs more water. So you don't want everything on the same watering regime. 
Well, to plant a garden, you need soil, and if you're not doing it in pots, if you're doing it in the ground and you haven't planted a, a garden in your yard before, what are some first steps you should take? Well, sometimes if you move into a place like we did here that was empty for two years because uh, it was back when mortgages were in trouble in 08-ish, the, the landscape has not been maintained and it's full of weeds. So the first thing to do is clear those weeds away. Clear the weeds away, and there is debate now about rototilling soil. Yeah. And I could justify rototilling once initially to put in uh, some compost. But if you don't want to do that, well, one easy way to improve your soil is through sheet mulching. Yes, yeah, sheet mulching. I did that at my mother's house. She wanted some to add some perennials around her. Um, she had a, a light on a post in the yard near the driveway. And so one time I went out and laid down a bunch of newspaper. Takes several layers. Newspaper is now made with soy ink. And so you use the dull pages that, not the shiny ones, they may have other uh, chemicals in them you don't want in your soil, but the dull newspaper, several layers, five, six layers, lay it down in the fall. I put mulch over it, uh, bark mulch over the top, leaf mulch, whatever I could find, and then let it sit. And by spring, you will have smothered those weeds and you can plant into it. And you've improved the soil as well. Right, correct. Another thing to watch in that first year before you plant is where does the water go when it rains? Are there muddy areas that seem to persist for days after a storm? Those areas should probably get marked off. It could be as simple as uh, taking a T-post or a stake and just stick it in that perennial muddy area. Most plants that are desirable don't like muddy soil. So in those areas, you may want to consider uh, raised beds or planting in pots. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I have a spot like that in this yard, and I put the vegetable garden, the raised bed near there, covering part of that spot. Part of it I just don't use in the winter when we get our rains here in California. For that person starting a garden for the first time, I, I would kind of shy away from recommending starting from seed and, unless the plant typically grows from seed and just go to the nursery and get yourself a six-pack, a four-pack, a gallon plant, a five- or a 15-gallon uh, container. But what are some easy confidence-building plants to put in as far as uh, annuals go, perennials, and vegetables? Well, annuals are plants that complete their life cycle in one year. Often it's a portion of one year, let's say from spring through summer, and it, and it goes to seed and dies in the fall. That's a great time to, to garden, especially with kids. And with kids, big seeds are very desirable because they can handle them well. And they can see the results of those plants that come up quickly. And so sunflowers are one wonderful one, easy to start from seed. Zinnias are another one that's easy to start from seed. Not such big seeds, though. There are beans that can, you can grow from seed. They can be bush beans that you're going to get an edible crop from, or they can be a vining scarlet runner bean, which does give an edible crop, but I often grow it just for the beautiful red flowers it produces. And I did some research on it back when my kids were in a daycare and found that uh, at that time, uh, in the in the late 80s anyway, the research said that a kid could eat the entire plant and not get sick. So it's a, a great thing to have around little ones as well. Um, Perennials are plants that you can expect to last for more than a year. Right. And then the, the trick... I think about perennials is planting them at the right time. Nurseries will have them when they're in flower and 
I would prefer to buy them when they're not in flower and put them in uh, in the fall. Some There are perennials that bloom in the fall, but there are a lot of perennials bloom in the spring and the summer, and I would prefer to plant them when they're out of flower. They root better that way. When it comes to planting vegetables, uh, some of the easier ones to grow include greens, such as lettuce. But the trick with things like lettuce is what climate do you live in? If you live in a hot climate, those uh, lettuces and some spinaches and, and other of those leafy greens that you may enjoy do best in the cool season planted between September and February, March. If it's the warm season, you could switch to some other heat-loving plants that are easy to grow, perhaps uh, tomatoes or peppers. Right. Cucumbers are also pretty easy to grow from seed and another big seed. But all of these things we're talking about need that six to eight hours of of sun, um, except maybe the greens. If you have no bright sun or if the spots of bright sun move around, a uh, couple things to consider. One is put the plants in a pot and move, put the pot on wheels and move it around from sunny space to sunny space. That's a whole lot of labor, by the way. The other is to grow things where you eat the leaves, like the lettuces and greens. How do you feel about mulch? <laughs> you can see. <laughs> My yard is full of mulch. That's one of the reasons I can do that watering so infrequently is I have organic mulch on top of this soil and that breaks down with the help of naturally existing uh, organisms and the what's left, the broken down organic matter is what holds water in the soil and that helps the plants to have a even water even though I'm only applying it once every two weeks or so, the roots are getting it over a much longer period of time. I wouldn't use the same arborist mulch in my vegetable garden that I would use on my landscape, but you can buy uh, compost or you can make your own compost, something that is a little finer, not so much wood uh, in, in the product. Exactly. Yeah. You save the arborist clippings for your hardwood plants and then use worm castings or compost for your uh, soft-bodied plants. Right. The one thing we haven't talked about, and you, this should be part of your first garden checklist, is how much time are you willing to devote to taking care of it? Because just like raising a family, it's all about maintenance. Yes, it really is. I like to walk my landscape every day. And I have paths. You need to set up paths when you create a garden so that you can get around and check on things. And I, the, the number one thing I do is weed, but often I need to prune something that's, that's growing out into the path. Uh, look for those pests, see what's flowering, see what needs to be harvested. You can't know what to do in the garden if you don't visit it on a regular basis. Smart gardeners have multiple pairs of pruning shears that they, they hide throughout the garden in like old mailboxes or some sort of structure to protect them from the elements, which isn't a bad idea because as you learn to enjoy gardening, you will always have a pair of pruning shears with you. Yes, I have them in my car, I have them in the kitchen, I have them in the garage, and I often have one in my back pocket. One thing you notice as you become familiar with your garden, you're going to find out when your plant is healthy and when it's not healthy just by observing. And that's something you've said a lot on this podcast is get out there and spend time with your plants. That's right. Get to know them, enjoy them, and Visit them so you know when things are starting to go wrong. It's so much easier to control a problem at the beginning when it starts to happen than waiting until it gets much bigger. And the number one example of that is weeds. 
Weeds are much easier to control when they're small, but if you let them flower and produce seed, then you've just increased the problem. Attack weeds early. And by the way, one helpful hint that a lot of experienced gardeners follow is they realize while they're having their morning coffee, oh, I need to get out in the yard and do such and such today. Write it down. Put it in your pocket because when you go outside, you're going to find other things. And before you know it, four hours have gone by and you're going to ask yourself, now, why did I come out here originally? That is so true. I use uh, my filing system is my pants pockets. but <laughs> That is so true. I do write them down with the chores that I, I think need to be done. I've been known to wake up in the middle of the night and write things down because <laughs> for whatever reason, it's going through my head. So, yes, uh, and, and you do. It's like... There are jokes about people going into one room to do something and never doing it because they find something else to do. The garden is just the same way. We'll have this checklist on the Beyond the Basics newsletter that comes out on Friday, so you can look for it there. I hope you weren't trying to take notes and drive and listen at the same time. So, again, that'll be part of the, the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Beyond the Basics newsletter coming out this Friday, your first garden checklist. Debbie Flower, great to be in your garden. Thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying it. My pleasure. I've told you about Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planters. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. They're BPA-free and lead-free, making them safe for growing vegetables and other edibles. Well, the folks at Smart Pots have added a new product to their lineup, perfect for building the healthiest soil imaginable for your garden. By composting, it's the Smart Pot Compost Sack, a large 100-gallon fabric bag that's lightweight yet extremely durable and lasts for years. It can hold 12 cubic feet of pure compost. This rugged fabric is entirely porous, containing many micropores that allow for air circulation and drainage. It's easy to start a compost pile with the Smart Pot Compost Sack. Just open the sack, set it on level ground, and start adding your compostable materials, grass clippings, vegetable peelings, coffee grounds, and more, as well as fallen leaves, straw, and shredded paper. Next, place the optional cover over the sack. That's all there is to it. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. You can find the location nearest you at their website. And you can buy it online from Smart Pots. Just visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED, F-R-E-D. Do it at checkout from the Smart Pots store. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers and their new compost sack. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Debbie Flower says don't toss out that old potting soil that you might have sitting around in containers that maybe have the remnants of last year's summer annuals in them. There's a way to reinvigorate that potting soil so that it's as good as new. You're listening to part three of our four-part series, 2022's Greatest Garden Hits. It's the most downloaded segments of the last 12 months here on the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Podcast.
We like to have Debbie Flower drop by when we uh, answer your garden questions and just talk gardening in general here in the Abutilon jungle. Debbie, it's that time of year when people are going to go out, they're going to get plants, they're going to get seed, mm-hmm. and they may be buying soil. But before they buy soil, they may take a look at uh, around their yard and they see all these pots with no plants in them, but mm-hmm. they're full of soil. Mm-hmm. There might be nurseries that might say, oh, you don't want to use that. You need to buy our new soil. Right. Uh, but that old soil that you have, I guess it really depends what's in it and what it is. Right. And, uh, what it needs. Right. And can it be reused? Yes. I reuse potting soil all the time. I have many instances where I look around and there are pots with dead things in them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As I said to my cousin, I still kill plants. I just know how to do the autopsy. I typically know or have an idea of what killed them as well. I take out the what is left of the plant. There's often a, a decent root system. I'll bang it around on the, on my potting venture in my container and uh, get off as much of the container media as I can from those roots. Notice I say container media. This is not field soil. And I dump it into, I use kitty litter boxes that I bought specifically for the purpose of mixing media. And I dump it in there, mix it up with whatever else I have, and reuse it. I very often add a rock component to that reusable media and some new bagged container media. Container media is not soil. It is organic matter plus some typically rock components. Peat moss, coir, or compost are usually the organic matter. And then the rock components are perlite, vermiculite, pumice, sand, something like that. And it's often one part of the organic matter to two parts of the sand component. And the reason for that is that over time, the organic component breaks down. And as it breaks down, the particles get smaller, and the space between the particles where the air and water hang out in a container gets smaller, and the plant starts to suffer. So... A plant has died in the container media. It's been in there some period of time. And that container, the organic component of that container media has broken down. So the pore spaces, the open spaces between the components of container media have gotten too small, maybe, or they've definitely gotten smaller. They may have gotten too small for roots to actively live in there. So I want to fix that. That's one thing I want to fix is particle size. So I do that by adding some new media from uh, a bag and some usually more rock component. Mix them together, get the texture, and I do it very much by feel and I don't have recipes. And then I'll reuse them. I will never reuse media to start seeds in. To starting seeds, you want things sterile. You want the pots to be absolutely clean and you want the media to be unused. So I'm not using it for that. But I will move my houseplants up to a bigger size or my uh, seedlings that I started in six packs, I'll move them up to four inch, something like that, using this reused media. The other thing that I need to worry about with the media is salt component. The salt is fertilizer. Fertilizer has to be in the salt form for the plant to be able to take it up has to be able to dissolve in water and move to the plant's roots and enter the plant's roots. And so that's the salt form. And if there's too much of that in there, the pH of the soil will go up. So the soil will be too alkaline. When that happens, then nutrients that are in the soil become unavailable to the plant. The easiest way to do that is just just flush the, the media with fresh water for several minutes and allow it to come out through the drain holes of the pot. 
But yes, I absolutely reuse media frequently. Are you open for questions? Yes, sir. Oh, good, good. To your last point there, one thing I do, I, I get myself a five-gallon bucket, and I will take that old container mix and put it in the bucket because usually peat moss is part of that Yes, uh, which mix. is hard to re-wet. It's hard to re-wet. So in a bucket with no drain holes, I will put that soil mix and then fill the bucket with water and then go do something else. Mm-hmm. When I come back several hours later, that moisture has basically permeated throughout that entire body of potting soil, and I then transfer the potting soil to large plastic containers with drain holes and let the whole thing drain. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. And then I can get in there with my hands and grab the soil and <laughs> and, and refill whatever pot I was going to do, mm-hmm. knowing yes. that it's thoroughly moist. Yes. Potting soil can dry out to, to beyond rewetting easily, and so you're right. You have to... Soak it, or you can use, if you're anxious, you can use warmer water and work it with your hands and maybe just a drop, just a drop, literally just a drop of dish soap. And you want it to be soap. It really w- would be better if it were Castile soap or ivory soap, uh, not detergent. But that helps, breaks down the surface tension of water and allows it to permeate the particles of the container media more easily. But I always have my soil moist before, from top to bottom, before I put it in a container. Good idea. Questions. Yeah. You mentioned that with that old compressed potting soil, you will add some new media and some sort of rock component. Mm -hmm. Could you be more specific? I usually have a bag of something. It could be (laughs) peat moss, just a bag of peat moss. Could be a bag of coir, a milled coir. Could be a bag of container media that was sold to me as container media hanging around. I always make a point of having some. And then I prefer pumice, actually, in my containers. It's heavier. For a rock component. For the rock component, yes. I prefer it over perlite. Perlite is also a rock component. It's physically smaller than most pumice, but it's very, very, very dusty. And I have had bad reactions to it. That dust can get down in my throat, and I think it gets beyond my throat. And I'll be miserable for a couple of days because I inhaled it. I do have masks yeah, now that yeah. I can wear. <laughs> if, if you don't, I see some on the street. Right, right. There's, yes, they're, they're everywhere these days. But it's a habit now, and I've gotten out of it. I do keep a little perlite around. It's often good for starting seeds. And vermiculite is another one I like to have around. I use it to top media to cover seeds because it holds moisture well. It allows air in, it allows light in, so even if the seeds need light to germinate, but I I use it for that. But I don't put it in media as much because it is expanded mica, and mica is a very shiny rock with many layers. So when it expands, it expands sort of like an accordion, and it's easy to crush. So it loses its some of its better characteristics, like it gets smaller if you crush it yeah. by handling. So uh, another one that I, I just haven't gotten found a good source, have to be honest since they haven't looked very hard, but is sand, builder's sand, if you bought it at the big box store, horticultural sand, if you bought it in a horticultural environment, is usable as the rock component. It has been sized. Sand comes in a whole variety of sizes. So if you went to the beach and picked up sand or you went to the quarry and picked up sand, the sand would be in all different sizes. And when you put that in the together in a container, the little pieces fall between the big pieces and you don't have good pore space in that media. So builder sand and horticultural sand have been sized. They also have been washed. 
sand is usually in a place where an ocean used to be. And so oceans have salt in them and you don't want that salt. So it's been washed, it's been sized, and for those reasons, it's used, it, it's a good choice for the rock component in media. Do you have any problems with using bagged compost as part of the hamburger helper mix in that reusing of potting soil? I have not. There are no laws I'm aware of that regulate what is in a bagged, when you buy a bag of container media. So unlike a pesticide, mm-hmm. what's in that bo- bottle or box had better be what's in that bottle or box or you've broken the law. There's nothing like that for bagged goods. However, there are companies that make good products. They want to make good products. They sell good products. Other people recommend their good products. And so they are consistent just by that pressure from their buyers. And so when I go to buy a bagged good, I will flip the bag over and it will tell you the components in the bag. And if there's compost in it and it's a brand that I have faith in, then I have no problem with that. Nice tap dancing, Ginger. (laughs) But what is it about compost that makes you leery of using it as an ingredient in rehabbing potting soil? It could be high in salts. Mushroom compost is one of those that could be high in salts. It could contain redwood fines. If I'm trying to start seeds, redwood inhibits that process. Mm. Or it could have nothing in it, nothing desirable, because compost, depending on how it's been made, will lose all of its nitrogen in the process. And it's just an organic matter. And that's that can be okay. You just need to know that. Uh, peat moss is just an organic matter, but it's a known organic matter with a certain pH. Quar is the same way, although its processing has gotten better. When it first came on the market, it had some pH issues, but that has gotten better. What are your thoughts about using worm castings in a soil mix? Often you, when you read the list of what's in a container uh, media bag, there may be worm castings in there. There may be uh, uh, composted chicken manure in there. Worm castings I'm fine with. Chicken manure makes me a little bit more leery, especially for starting seeds because it tends, to, it can be very high in nitrogen, which can burn plants and plant roots. And we usually think of that as a fertilizer anyway. Yes. Yeah. A fertilizer instead of, yes. Which brings up an interesting question. You mentioned that when one of the big problems with reusing old potting soil is the buildup of salts. And you mentioned fertilizer. And I think most people who listen to the show are familiar with the buildup of salts due to synthetic fertilizers. Mm -hmm. What about organic fertilizers? Can they cause a salt buildup? Absolutely. They can, especially if they're manures. Mm. Yes. What about liquefied versions like a fish emulsion? You want to look at the analysis. So fertilizers have numbers, uh, three numbers by law. They have to have three numbers on the label. And the numbers can be as low as, well, they can be zero. They can be mm-hmm. 0.1 or anything above. Uh, some fertilizers can be 30, as high as 30. If you're fertilizing an existing plant, you don't need those 30s. Those, that's very high. That can burn the plant. 20 can burn the plant. We're looking at single digits or below would, would be the f- analysis. So the three numbers are percent nitrogen and phosphorus, yes, and percent potash. Well, okay. So you go for something that has single digits, like mm-hmm. a 555 or an 841 or, or, or whatever. Some of those could be manures. Some of those could be manures, but they have been diluted somehow or, or washed and lost some of their powerful nitrogen. It's nitrogen that the manures contain. Okay, so there's nothing on a label of an organic fertilizer that would indicate that there is sodium in here. 
Uh, there may be. Some of them will list on the back. There's a analysis of the fertilizer that's in the container. And they have to tell you nitrogen, and then underneath that it'll be soluble nitrogen and insoluble nitrogen. So the soluble nitrogen is available to the plant immediately. That number is very important. That's where you're going to get burn if you're going to get it. The insoluble nitrogen has to be broken down into that salt form, which is soluble by uh, time, temperature, and microorganisms. And moisture. And moisture. So the conditions of growing are what will uh, determine how fast that happens. And if temperatures are good and you got moisture and, and, uh, you've got healthy soil, that'll be fairly quickly, but the plant will also grow fairly quickly. So it's a nice symbiosis sort of where the plant, the fertilizer breaks down and the plant grows f- fast enough to use it up. And so typically you don't get burned from the insoluble nitrogen. Then they'll say phosphoric acid and what the percentage of that is and potash, what the percentage of that is. And then they sometimes list other things. Right. Uh, calcium, iron, uh, sulfur are three that are very commonly listed. Sometimes I have seen sodium. Uh, sodium is a bad guy. If you live with a water treatment system in your house that takes the calcium out of your water, it's typically replaced with sodium, and that will kill plants really quickly. In houses that are set up that way, you typically have a spigot outdoors that does not have uh that is not attached to the water treatment system and that's the water you want to use for indoor and outdoor plants. One thing I will avoid buying in container media is mycorrhiza. Yeah, what the hell's that? <laughs> mycorrhiza is a relationship between uh fungus and uh plants. And the fungus needs the plant for sugar. And the plant benefits from the presence of the fungus by, uh, fungus can bring, can grow very quickly over large spans of, of soil or mulch and permeate places smaller than plant roots can get into and bring back to the plant, typically it's phosphorus and water. It sounds wonderful and it is wonderful, but there is no need Unless we're reclaiming mining sites, which some people do. I did for a while in part of my career. But gardeners in general do not need to inoculate containers or field soil with mycorrhiza. When mycorrhiza was first discovered and promoted, fertilizer companies jumped on the bandwagon and said, we're going to put this in our bagged goods and raise the price. The price of fertilizer, uh, excuse me, the price of bagged goods went up tremendously. The problem is that mycorrhiza is very specific. The uh, host plant, it will only react to certain host plants and it will only react if the host plant is in need of the phosphorus. It will not grow unless it, it will benefit. Plants ooze things out of their roots liquid and that liquid has some kind of chemical component and if the chemical component is such that shows the plant is in need of phosphorus that chemical component allows stimulates the mycorrhiza to grow if you're applying a mycorrhiza to a healthy plant in a healthy soil environment and the, there are no plant no nutrient deficiencies the mycorrhiza will never grow it is a live organism it is capable of going into dormancy but these are not handled as live organisms in the bag media world. They're just thrown in there and the bags sit wherever they sit, warehouses, truck bodies, outdoors and the at the garden center. Whether the 
mycorrhiza is viable, is questionable. Is it the right one for your plant? That's questionable. And does your plant really need it? That's questionable. The thing is, it costs a lot of money. The other thing about mycorrhizae is there's a territorial battle going on, too. And if there are any surviving mycorrhizae in that box or bag that's been sitting in a parking lot or whatever at a nursery, it's probably not alive. But if there are any of that alive, they're going to have competition because there's already mycorrhizae in the soil. So why not just feed your soil with mulch or organic products to build up uh, their populations. And, yes. And they're gonna, that population is going to fluctuate depending on if anything's growing there. Or not. Yes. 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 It's, it's, a uh, the soil, and we're learning more and more about this all the time. Uh, the soil is, is alive. There's a lot of stuff in there. If you mulch, I mulch with, uh, arborist chips and I go to plant something or, and I'll dig in there and I'll flip it over and there's this mass of whiteness. That's mycorrhiza. That's the fungus. That's the beneficial fungus. That's the good stuff. And so it's happening. I did not apply anything. And there is, I believe, some scientific evidence that shows that these mycorrhizae even get into container media. Right. And we should point out, too, that when we say mycorrhizae, we're not there. There is no critter in the ground named Mike. Uh, (laughs) It's either a bacteria or a fungus. And it's a, the mycorrhizae refers to the reaction that goes right. on to transfer nutrients to the plant roots. Right. And it's, you know, that's another thing too that I, I more and more people are doing. I, I think it's called regenerative gardening. It, it has a name now. Mm. And it talks about just leaving the roots of your old vegetable plants in the ground mm-hmm. as a source of nutrients to continue that mycorrhizal activity. Mm-hmm. The no-till movement. Yeah, the mm-hmm. no-till movement, yes. It, but everybody needs a fancy new name, so now right. it's regenerative gardening. Right. Well, that, I think, is a more positive spin on the name than no-till. Yeah, exactly. It tells you what is it's doing, you know, not giving commands. Well, I tell you what, if you want to go down that scenic bypass right now, let's, because that is <laughs> one area that people do get into. And when they get into gardening, they like to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they might be considering buying, and it's a high ticket item, is a rototiller. Right. And yeah, they're fun. By the way, if you do buy a rototiller, make sure it's a rear tine mm-hmm. rototiller, not a front tine rototiller. It's a lot easier on your back. But what you're doing when you till up the soil is you're destroying all those freeways and byways and passageways and everything that uh, the the mycorrhizal activity needs to exist, including right. earthworms. Right. You're, there, there's an environment down there that has been created by all the live things, both large and small, in the soil. And it's like somebody coming in and with a giant rototiller and going over your house and you would have to rebuild. Yeah. And it creates, I forget the term. It'll come to me when I'm done recording. I'm sure <laughs> uh, there, there's a term that what a rototiller does to that soil level below where it can reach. It basically seals it up. Yes. Because you break up soil forms, what's called aggregates. And it's really the poop of the microorganisms that live in the soil that acts as the glue to glue soil particles together. If you have a clay soil, you actually have some of the best gardening soil you can have, but it has to form aggregates before you can really garden in it. But it has great water holding ability, great nutrient holding ability, and once it has formed aggregates then it has also good drainage. To form aggregates, you have to add the organic matter that the microorganisms eat, then they 
poop, everything poops, and that glue holds the, that that poop acts as the glue to hold the uh, clay particles together in irregular shapes, and so it increases the size of the clay, allows for air penetration and water penetration. Basically, that when you rototill, you're basically seeing off those lower layers from getting air and water. Right, you break up those aggregates that have so wonderfully formed, you're back to the very, very tiny particles. The tiny particles move with water and they flow down and create a layer of just tiny particles and it's typically clay because that's the smallest particle in the soil and that seals off the top, top part of the soil from the bottom part. If you need to spend 800 or or $1,000 on a new garden toy, get a chipper shredder. Yeah, there you go. You get a chipper shredder and all these tree branches that you're pruning off uh, yearly or your neighbors need it, those chips, those shredded tree branches make a great mulch. Yes, they do. You don't incorporate it into the soil. No, you, you just lay it on top. Just lay it on top. And as that mulch breaks down, and it will, it's feeding the soil. It is. And it also changes the composition of the microorganisms that live in the soil to ones that discourage a lot of our uh, herbaceous weeds. You will have weeds but they'll be easier to pull out. But you won't have near the population of weeds you would have had had you used a different mulch or had you not put this down at all. There are those who defend the use of rototillers as a one-time operation mm-hmm. when starting a new garden. Mm-hmm. Good idea? Bad idea? Um, If I could get somebody to come in and do it for me, I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> the one time. Same with double digging. I double dug my, my vegetable bed the first time. I think I'd rather rototill. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although rototillers can't go as deeply as a, a double right. dig does. Yeah. So uh, double digging takes off the top layer, puts it aside, and then digs into the bottom layer. Uh, good stuff. Organic matter, mm-hmm. typically. And then you take off the top layer from next door, move it over, and and loosen up and add good stuff to and you to the bottom layer and you do that over the whole bed finally removing the first top layer all the way to the other end of the bed and making putting it on top but you just do that once and mulch will take care of it for the rest of its life that opens it all up then you put mulch on top if you keep the soil protected with mulch on top forever after it will never get tight again and also by keeping those old roots of your old vegetable plants in the ground, uh, that also helps uh, create airspace. Mm-hmm. Roots are pretty amazing. They they create a pathway for water to get mm-hmm. down into the soil. For All instance, right. I forget where we started, but we gave out a lot <laughs> of great information there. Yeah, we should go back and hear the beginning. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have faith. Yes, I do. I believe it was reusing I, old potting, potting soil. soil. Yes, right. <laughs> well, that was very scenic. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The weather may not be perfect for outdoor gardening right now, but it's perfect for planning your 2023 garden. Now's the time to plan the what and the where of what you want to plant for the future. And to help you along, it pays to visit your favorite independently owned nursery on a regular basis throughout the fall and winter just to see what's new. And coming soon to that nursery near you is Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites. Great tasting, healthy fruit and nut varieties. They'll already 
be potted up and ready to be planted. And we're also talking about a great selection of antioxidant-rich fruits, such as blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, goji berries, grapes, kiwi, mulberries, gooseberries, figs, and pomegranates. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great-tasting fruit and nut trees of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you can find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. Here in California, we are wondering if the drought is over after all the heavy rains of January. Uh, quick answer, it's not over. Other parts of the country are going through unusual dry spells this winter. No matter where you live, water is not the dependable commodity it used to be. So just in case it's dry this summer, there are steps gardeners can take now to help maintain soil moisture and use less water as a result. Debbie Flower has the tips. You're listening to part three of our four-part series, 2022's Greatest Garden Hits. It's the most downloaded segments of the last 12 months here on the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. Flower is here, America's favorite retired college horticultural professor. And Debbie, it's springtime and a lot of articles are coming out about vegetable gardening uh, from from newspapers. The Los Angeles Times had an article uh, in early spring about how to keep your vegetable garden alive this summer in a mega drought. And that's what we have here, not only in California, but it's throughout the southwest and even into the intermountain states as well. Serious lack of of rainfall. Yes. And people need to conserve. There are water conservation measures that seem to get more and more strict mm-hmm. as the weather warms up. Yep. And this uh, Los Angeles Times article, which was, by the way, entitled, We're in a Mega Drought. Here's how to keep your veggie garden alive this summer. It had some suggestions. Their most obvious one, of course, is one that we've talked about all a lot, and that's uh, using mulch. Yes. And mulch is a good thing. They had, though, some that seemed like there could be problems attached to it. And right. I'd, I'd like to talk about that because I, I have seen people do these two things in order to think they're... I have seen professionals do these things when installing plants. One of the things uh, they suggest was large PVC pipes send water deep into the ground. Perforated PVC pipes. This person drills holes in 4-inch PVC pipes and then buries them 18 to 20 inches deep. As far vertically, with the top protruding above the ground, so you pour water into the pipe with a hose, and you're going to be watering your roots uh, that way. And he says that you grow tomatoes easily that way. There's a problem with that. Yeah, there there is a problem. There's all sorts of problems with that. First of all, digging an 18 to 20 inch hole that is four inches in diameter. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure unless you've got a fence auger on post, a drill. Yes, yeah. fence post uh, ways to put a fence post in. Yes, but 18 to 20 inches. Okay, so you need a two foot drill bit to do that, and it would have to be soil that is compatible <laughs> with going down two feet right. easily, because these little uh, augers, especially the drill mounted augers, uh, they're not going to do it. Right, two feet is. Quite a distance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always advised that if you're going to be digging holes, 
for planting or whatever, and you've got really poor soil, really hard clay soil, you want to bring in a guy that does it for a living. Mm-hmm. And usually their tool of choice is a two and a half to three foot diameter drill bit that is attached to the motor of their Jeep. Yeah. So they can get, you have to have some power. Yeah. You need a lot of power. Even the, the tractor mounted uh, PTO outlet uh, drill bits are going to bounce up and down mm. on uh, clay soil. So you need something that has even more power mm-hmm. than that. Uh, but anyway, okay, so let's say you do get these holes dug, put the four-inch PVC pipe with the holes. He doesn't specify here where the holes are. Where the holes are or what the diameter of the holes are. Right. You don't need water down 20 inches deep. You have to understand that plants, people are always wanting to get their roots deep, and to get them deeper is better than more shallow for temperature regulation so that the roots are in on moderate temperatures. But an e- way easier way to do that is to put mulch on top, so to prevent the sun from hitting the soil directly. The general rule of thumb is that's that 90% of the feeder roots, the roots on a plant that can absorb moisture and nutrients, are in the top six inches of the soil. It's very dependent on soil type, but that's a general rule of thumb, six inches. And the reason they're that shallow is, yes, they need water, but they also need oxygen. Roots do a process called respiration, which is basically breathing, and it's just a part of the plant. We won't go into respiration right now, but it happens in roots as well as in other parts of the plant, and the roots have to have oxygen for that. If there is no oxygen or a limited amount of oxygen, the roots will not go deeper. All of the roots in a tree that are feeder roots are in the top three feet of soil. Once you apply water, where does it go? Down. Gravity pulls it down. You don't need to put it at 20 inches. You need to put it where you're going to get most of your feeder roots, some water, and that's the top six inches. And then from there, it will move down in soil. Now, I know people will say, I have found roots deeper than three feet. Yes, plants produce roots deeper than three feet. They produce roots for stability, anchor roots. But those roots don't have the ability to absorb nutrients and don't need oxygen, therefore. They are actually parasitic roots. They're being fed by the parts of the plant that are able to make food above. Roots in general are parasitic. But some of them have a job of absorbing that water and nutrients, which helps create that food. Those stability roots are just down there holding the plant in the ground, and they're not doing any absorbing. The other problem with putting all your water in a four-inch pipe is you're limiting the spread, the outward spread of that water, mm-hmm. and roots are all around the tree. So are you going to put in eight pipes or, or you know, one pipe? You're just watering one portion of one side of the tree. Mm-hmm. You want an equal amount of roots on all sides of the tree. The easiest way to do that is with a drip emitter system or a micro sprayer system where you are literally watering a circle that goes out six feet or so mm-hmm. around the tree. It roots go out an incredibly long distance away from the plant. The rule of thumb is that they spread in all directions two and a half to three times the height of the plant. So if you have a three foot tall, and that's a short tomato plant, then the roots are going to go four and a half to six feet away from the plant in all directions if conditions are right for root growth. And that gives them the most area to find nutrition and water 
and it keeps the plant stable. If all the water's on one side, roots are very opportunistic. They will grow where conditions are right for roots to grow. And so if the water's only on one side, you're only going to have roots on one side. So basically, I, I wouldn't spend my time trying to drill... 20-inch deep holes and sticking a PVC pipe in it, it, there's a lot easier ways to do it. There are, yes. And and they work. What about their other suggestion about digging a five-gallon nursery pot into your garden to send water deep down? That won't go as deep because a five-gallon or a number five grow pot is about 15 inches tall. Mm -hmm. So you're only going 15 inches at most. It typically has, they're about a foot in diameter and there are typically drain holes on all sides maybe four to six drain holes depending on the manufacturer of the pot and so you're going to get the water spread out a little better with that but you're still avoiding if that's your only way to water you're still not getting to those feeder roots that are in the top six inches of the soil yeah, because if you're just relying on the holes that are at the bottom of that five gallon container water doesn't tend to come back up right it, it, it does it, incredibly slowly, like geological pace. Yeah. So don't count on that. Water goes down. The gardens of the native peoples in Arizona, Arizona is really, really dry. Uh, I'm talking southern Arizona here. And very hot for a long period of time. They relied on flood irrigation. So that puts the water right on the surface of the soil, so much so that their beds were created, and it's still done in places. Uh, there's a big pecan orchard down there that I visited as a, when I worked for the University of Arizona in the plant sciences department, and I still visit it now. And all those trees are in low spots so that the water, they just flood the soil and let the water drain down. It's still done today. What about the donut system, the double levee system that some people use for flood irrigation around a tree? They will build it like a four-inch, five-inch levee in a circle, maybe six or seven or eight inches away from the trunk of the tree. So you've got this, mm-hmm. you know, little circle of dirt there. And then further out at the outer portion of the tree, which is called the drip line of the canopy of the tree, they build another circular wall, if you will, five, that, six or seven inches, and then flood the area in between. That is for establishment irrigation. So, and I've read a PhD thesis that talked about this. When you first plant a container grown tree in the landscape or anything else that was grown in a container. It is in container media, which is primarily uh, organic matter. That's not what you have in your yard, or most of us do not have that kind of soil in our landscape. So somehow those roots have to transition from that container media into the field soil. So we cut the roots to hopefully establish new tips on the roots that will grow out. We rough up the edges of the inside of the hole so the roots have some place to grab onto. And then we plant it. And we plant proud because that container media is going to settle. And then right around the container media only is the first, I call it a donut type of irrigation. Mm-hmm. So the inside of the donut. So the container media would be in the donut hole. Then you put another berm further out when I did it and I did I established a whole field of shrubs this way for my part of my thesis uh, we only went out another foot and put the second donut in uh, the edge of the outside of the donut in so that there was a, a moat area in between the container soil that has the plant roots in it and is made of primarily organic matter dries out before field soil because the mm-hmm. texture of the container soil 
is rougher than the texture of field soil. So you water the container soil only as much as is needed. And when I did it in a summer here at UC Davis, so in Davis, California, we had to water every day. And we applied only what that size container media would hold. It was a one gallon, and I think it was a liter of water that we applied to every plant. Then once a week, we watered. So that water we put on the inside kept that plant alive. Okay, but once a week you were watering inside then the berms. once a week we water inside the berms, what, what would be the donut. Mm-hmm. And that wet the field soil enough so that the roots could move out, but not so much that it was too wet for the roots so it displaced the oxygen. All right. So that is a legitimate system for establishing plants. But once... Winter comes, number one, you knock down the berms here in California because that's where we get, when we get our water. Theoretically. But, right, theoretically, right. And number two, roots will go way beyond the drip line. So you need to water, for a stable tree, you need to water way beyond the drip line. You mentioned two things uh, that probably need a bit of clarification. Okay. You said to, to cut back the roots if you're planting a new plant. Mm-hmm. How far back do you cut the roots? Cut back is probably, I shouldn't have said just cut the roots. You want to score them. And if the plant has been well grown, you don't need to go more than a quarter of an inch in. All right. You're You're talking about the root ball itself that's attached to that soil. When you pop that plant out of the pot and the soil and plant are all together like that, you see the roots going round and round on the outside. Right. And in a woody plant, those round and round roots will eventually kill the plant. In an herbaceous plant like a tomato, it's not so much not going to live long enough. The roots are not going to get woody. It's not going to kill the plant. But it's an opportunity for you to create openings where new Behind your cut, new root tips will grow, and the root tips are the things that are going to absorb the water and nutrition. All right. So basically, you're just scraping your fingernails. Right. Scrape your fingernails. Yeah. People talk about teasing the roots or scraping the roots. Right. All right. Now, you also use the term plant proud. Mm Mm-hmm. Plant proud means that you should the container soil should stick out of the field soil. In a little four-inch, it might just be for half an inch. If you're planting a gallon, I'd say if the the container soil should stick out an inch, inch and a half. If you're going to a planting a, a number from a number five, you're going to stick out several, three inches maybe. And then you mulch up to it mm-hmm. so that if you're using the berm, the berm acts as the mulch up to it. But you, if you're not, you mulch up to it so it doesn't dry out. But it will sink over time as it breaks down. One way to ascertain the correct amount is to put a shovel handle across that hole that you dug and then put your plant in. Where does that top of that container mix uh, lie in relation to that shovel handle? If you wanted an inch or two above that shovel handle, you'll probably have to lift the plant out, put some more soil at the bottom of the hole, and then reset the plant in. It's a big problem if you dig your holes too deeply. My husband had a tendency to do that for quite a while. (laughs) Then they become the low spot, and when you irrigate or or we get rain, it becomes a puddle around the base of the plant. You can introduce disease that way. You can drown the plant that way. Or lots of organic matter blows in, and eventually the plant ends up being buried too deeply. Husbands always get the blame. (laughs) Oh, I... I make a lot of mistakes, too. <laughs> yes, there is a drought for many of us, but you can still have a garden. And, in fact, in, in many areas here in California, the water agencies are going out of their way to say, you got to keep the trees. you got to keep the trees. And even though you might be killing the lawn around the trees uh, with a lack of water, you got to make sure your trees get water. Right. The trees don't need the same frequency of irrigation that the lawn does. Right. So, And lawns can go brown and they can recover. I was super surprised when I moved west 
and lawns were green all year round because I lived in a place where frost would kill mm-hmm. lawns. There was always a period of brown. It just didn't make sense to me. So, yes, accept that aesthetic that you should have a, a brown lawn for a period of the year. Yeah, this isn't the episode to get into the future of lawns, but uh, I, I don't see big lawns in our future. Right, and it, it, it seems to be more people seem to be accepting that fact. Yeah. Oh, and that's a battle. Okay, where were we? Mega drought. There are ways to mitigate the effects of uh, a lack of water falling from the sky. Basically, open up your wallet and pay more for water. Yeah, but water is surprisingly cheap. Yeah, and uh, so is mulch. Yes, yes, it's free, in fact. Yeah, so uh, consider that as part of your water-saving efforts. Absolutely. Debbie Flower, thanks for uh, saving us some water here. You're welcome, Fred. Want to leave us a garden question? You'll find a link at GardenBasics.net. Also, when you click on any episode at GardenBasics.net, you're going to find a link to SpeakPipe. You'll find it in the show notes. And when you bring up SpeakPipe on your computer or smartphone, you can leave us an audio question without making a phone call. Or you can go to SpeakPipe directly. That's SpeakPipe.com slash GardenBasics. You want to call or text us? We have that number posted at GardenBasics.net. It's 916-292-8964. 916-292-8964. Email? Sure, we like email. Send it along with your pictures to fred at farmerfred.com. Or again, go to GardenBasics.net and get that link. And if you send us a question, be sure to tell us where you're gardening, because all gardening is local. Find it all at GardenBasics.net. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast comes out once a week on Fridays. Plus, the newsletter podcast that comes with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter continues, and that will also be released on Fridays. Both are free, and they're brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. The Garden Basics podcast is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes our homepage, GardenBasics.net. And that's where you can also sign up for the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast. That's GardenBasics.net. Or you can use the links in today's show notes. And thank you so much for listening.